What a great blessing it is to worship together, amen, to bring our hearts together and to uh, find the Lord and meet the Lord in uh, this place of worship, in this place of study. And so uh, I'm very, very excited uh, that we're beginning a new series that we're calling Kingdom Culture. Um, And uh, the subtitle is When Earth Looks Like Heaven. We'll get into that a little bit more later. Uh, But let me tell you a little bit about where we're going to be. Uh, We're going to be in a passage of scripture that I'm going to call simply the sermon, because that's what it is. It is the sermon, the sermon. It's found in in Matthew chapters uh, 5 through 7. And I always tell you, uh, you you always know, if we're beginning a new series, Pastor Jeff is excited, right? I'm always excited. And I have to say that I'm excited, but there's a mixture of trepidation uh, and almost fear in walking into this territory. And there are a number of reasons why. Um, One of the biggest reasons is we're going to be in passages of scripture that are so familiar that they can just start to fade into the background. And we'll miss it. We'll miss God talking if we allow that to happen. And so it's very, I, I fear that for myself. All, the, all of the passages that you're going to hear, you've heard, um, even if you haven't been around church very much, you've heard many, many of the passages and the verses that we're going to be in in the weeks and months that are ahead. Um, so uh, one of the difficulties is the familiarity of, of this area of scripture. I was thinking about how in the series on the minor prophets, I thought, this is so cool. We're going to do Habakkuk. (laughs) Who's done that? You know, and Zephaniah and Zechariah. And there are all these guys that we didn't know about. And we could dig in and find out all these cool things. The hard thing about this is so familiar. uh, And we want to make sure that we don't dismiss it or tune it out or, or allow it to become kind of religious music in the background. So we're going to approach it, and I'm going to just read uh, two scriptures, uh, the very beginning and then the very ending. They're sort of the frame of this section, this passage that I'm going to, I call, many call, the sermon. And so let's just give our hearts and our attention uh, to the Word of God. I'm going to begin in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, uh, and then read it up into the beginning, and then I'm going to pick it up again in chapter 7. So let's just... Listen, you may want to open your Bible, and then you'll turn a couple pages in there. But uh, this gives us the frame of the area, the terrain that we're going to be in. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, 
And then in chapter 7, verse 28, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now let's stand and let's thank God for his word. Father, I thank you for all of your, your word. I thank you for the parts that are unfamiliar and fascinating and adventurous. And I, I thank you for the parts that are so familiar that we really need to hear from your spirit so that we might know your voice, we might know your heart. So, God, we pray that in this time we might walk carefully with your spirit in the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen be seated. So we're about to enter into the most famous sermon in history. Really, everybody agrees. I mean, you could, you're going to learn a lot of things that you could uh, win points on Jeopardy with <laughs> because of, of the way this is regarded. It's found in Matthew 5 through 7. And it's interesting because it's only about 15 minutes long. If you read it, it would take you 15 minutes. I, I encourage you to do that. In fact, I encourage you to do that a number of times. Uh, I won't say every day, but uh, by reading it, it's, it's one of the most easily memorized passages and areas of Scripture. And it's, we think it was actually created in a way so that it could be easily memorized. And so, uh, but it's a fascinating thing. Uh, a few have said, well, if he, if he could get it all together in 15 minutes, Pastor, excuse me, but maybe you can... Work on that a little bit. Well, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> I'll keep working on it. Um, we're, it's, it's early in the ministry of Jesus, but it's not the first sermon in the ministry of Jesus. It is the longest sermon that Jesus ever preached. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. The first preaching of Jesus was a, a ministry and a message of repentance. Uh, it's, it's a little bit earlier in that same chapter that I read from, uh, Matthew 4, beginning of verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a real simple message. At least that's how much we have of it. Repent! The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the first and most fundamental message of Jesus was to call people to repent. What does that mean? It means turn, turn back toward God. We've talked about that a number of times. You can describe it in a lot of different ways, change of mind and change of heart, change of actions, but it's a turn from the way you were doing things back to God. In fact, it has in it uh, an aspect of the grammar means to remember where you were supposed to be, like to remember home. Oh, yeah, I'm going the wrong way. And that's what repentance is. I'm going to go the right way back to God. That's what repentance is. And so this is the fundamental thing. And so Jesus announced, uh, called people to repentance, and he announced something called the kingdom of heaven. And uh, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, same thing, uh, is, is a, the breaking in to our existence uh, of the rule of God. When the rule of God breaks in, everything will be, everything is different. And he says it's at hand. It's right here. It's at hand, meaning it's within reach. And it's also, you are within its reach. It's breaking into your existence, into your life. 
So the sermon is all about that kingdom. It's all about kingdom life. What does it look like when the kingdom uh, grasps us and when we grasp it? What happens when the kingdom gets a hold of us? Uh, We use the phrase in Matthew uh, kind of exclusively, kingdom of heaven. That's a Jewish way of saying kingdom of God. So let me explain. Jewish people refrain from saying the name of God. Uh, they, They do out of absolute reverence. They don't write it. If you know a Jewish person that is observant in some measure, they will write G-D. They won't write the whole thing. That's why they do that. They don't want to write the name of God. Why? That scrap of paper might get into the trash and it would dishonor the name of God. So they don't say the name of God unless they have to say the name of God. And so it's a, it's a way of filling in saying kingdom of heaven, of course. And everyone knew what that meant. So that it was not giving some emptiness or disrespect to the name of God. So, you know, we live in the world of OMG, don't we? It's just kind of, and you just either have to get used to it or wince a lot or not worry about it. Um, but in Jewish circles and Jewish corners, and among, Matthew, Matthew would, would um, I don't mean to say he would be offended, but he would step back and and he's the most Jewish in his writing of all of the gospel writers. The sermon, I think, if I was naming it, I would call it the crown jewels of the scripture. What does that mean? Crown jewels are, are those things that show the kingdom. They show the authority. They show the grandeur. They show the riches of the kingdom. And it's not that these are going to be wealthy jewel type things, but greater in other ways, than any kind of wealth or jewels or authority or royal grandeur that we could imagine. Uh, In other words, what does it look like when we live in the power of his way and his kingdom? So we need to start to understand and understand what it is not. The sermon is not a guide to becoming more religiously pious or moral. You'll fail at that. Uh, So that's not what it's about. In fact, the central message of the sermon is that God our Father sees and cares about the heart, not just the religious deeds and the religious outward things. So much, you will hear that again and again and again. So it's not about, how, do I, how can I be more religious? I'll do these things. Well, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it completely. Some have called it a map to finding the kingdom, and yet in many ways, it's, it's an anti-religious statement. And so we begin to feel that all the way through. It's not a map uh, that specifically leads to eternal salvation, but it leads us to understand the kingdom and to walk in the way of the kingdom. Many conclude that the sermon is an impossible ideal. It's just an impossible target that you'll never hit. And all it does is show us our need for grace. That's been the assumption. Martin Luther said it uh, this way. He said that the sermon confronts us with our absolute need for grace and therefore drives us to salvation by faith. And that's all it does. As you look at it, you know, one of the statements is, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, who can do that? And yet it's there. We'll talk about how the Spirit brings us into that. The truth is... um, and, and, and we need to get a hold of a lot of truth. 
You cannot grasp or read or apply the sermon if you are not born again. It's not going to make you born again. The, the, the sermon won't do that. Um, Jesus said in John 3.3, 3, he said, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's as plain as it can be. We're not going to grasp what the kingdom of God is about. In fact, we'll look at these pages and just be kind of puzzled and frustrated. And we won't really know what to do. If we are not born again of the Spirit, it's not going to make sense and it will be frustrating to us. What we're going to see is a picture of what the Spirit does in a believer over time when we are surrendered to Him. That's the kingdom. And the central, uh, we're going to see the central authoritative message of the Messiah, which is for us to walk in the way of the kingdom. So you can see why this is kind of a a scary sort of passage of Scripture. D.A. Carson is a really well-known New Testament scholar at Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School. And this is what he wrote about it. And I I just sort of love this because this guy studied it and lived it and worked on it. He said, the more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight. But the light is so bright that it sears and burns. No room is left for forms of piety, which are nothing more than veneer and sham. Perfection is demanded, Jesus says. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so we're entering into a very searing, (laughs) shaming, and enlightening uh, arena of Scripture. Jesus, in in this sermon, was teaching kingdom life uh, for his disciples. Uh, And what does that mean? The manifestation of the kingdom in you and among God's people. So what is the culture of this kingdom of heaven that is at hand? That's what this is all about in these three chapters. And they're presented, the whole thing is presented in a spiritual order that is very important. Uh, Beginning in uh, chapter 5, which we'll be in next week, we come to these things called the Beatitudes. Beatitudes means blessings. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. So they're the blessings. We'll talk more about about those and historically some things about those. But the Beatitudes place this emphasis on on what we are as opposed to what we do. Blessed are the poor in spirit. doesn't even say, try really hard to be poor in spirit. (laughs) You'll be really religious if you're poor. It doesn't say that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So we'll dig into that next week. I hope you'll be here. Uh, After that, the next section deals with the relationship of Jesus to the law because there's a lot about the law. And he says, well, you remember the law said this. And they're kind of expecting, you're going to loosen things up because that's what rabbis did a lot in that time, loosen things up. And boy, he doesn't loosen things up. He tightens things up. And then chapter 6, he deals with our relationship with God. And chapter 7 deals with our relationship with man, with other people. So this is where we're headed. And really, the sequence is critical. The Beatitudes are at the beginning for a reason, and not at the end. We don't lead up and get to that. Uh, The Beatitudes are at the beginning because if you don't have the Beatitudes, I think it's kind of like physics. If you don't have the basics of physics, then you can't go on to the next part of physics. A lot of mathematics, if you don't have the basics of mathematics, you can't go to the next part of mathematics. And it's really built that way. 
There are statements within the sermon that are impossible if you just jump to them and don't start where we're going to be next week and in the few weeks after that. So it's really critical that we understand that. All of the directives in the sermon are built on this foundation of the Beatitudes, these blessings of what we are. So the sermon in Matthew 5 through 7 is actually, just so you know, in the bigger picture, it's the first of five major discourses in, in Matthew. I'm not going to go through them all. We'll study through Matthew another. We have studied through Matthew. We'll study through another time. But uh, they probably reflect the core teaching of Jesus that was brought repeatedly to the people in many locations. I believe that because Matthew chapter 5 says he sat down on a mountain and he opened his mouth and he started speaking, that he did that. But what we have is very likely, most scholars believe, a gathering of things he sat down and said in many places at many times. And so we have the core of what, what did Jesus teach? This is it. This is the core. We find similar teachings in the other Gospels. Uh, in Luke, uh, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's shorter. It's different. It's phrased a little bit different. But he taught this truth everywhere that he went. Uh, many conclude that the Lord probably said a good deal more than what we find right here. Uh, and some think that what is fashioned here and written down by Matthew is in a format uh, that was easily memorized. Oral tradition and memorization was so powerful. We don't even have an idea that uh, the people that went to the great effort to memorize all of the first five books of the Bible. And so memorizing this would be easy, nothing. Just so easy for many of them. And it very well was probably designed that way. So to carry with them, boy, if you carry it in your heart... And that's what we find if we memorize some of these things and we meditate upon them in our heart. Boy, the Lord just starts to speak to us. That's what the Lord has done with me in my life. Boy, the Lord speaks to us. I would suggest to you that the sermon is the primary lens or a primary lens for biblical interpretation. Now, what do I mean by that? We usually operate with a kind of hierarchy of interpretive authority in God's Word. Uh, oftentimes, we have our favorite scripture. And uh, just one that resonates with us. It might be something like, God is love. And so we look through that lens. If it, if it doesn't speak to me about God's love, then I just sort of push it aside. I actually don't think that's a really good way to approach because that's not the teaching of Jesus exactly. Jesus taught some other things, like God may take you into really difficult times that don't seem like love, and those are really what's going to happen. Those are really powerful and very good for you. <laughs> So um, you may have a favorite verse that you use. It could be John 3.16 or love your neighbor as yourself. And those are very important. And so this is a piece for a believer, a piece for, uh, I call it a lens. It's like what I look through. And when I'm trying to figure out something that's puzzling, and it might be in the Old Testament, it might be in the New Testament, it might be the writings of Paul, I look through this lens Judaism had a hierarchy of scriptural authority, and it starts with something called the Shema. So you see the word up there, Shema, but it's actually pronounced Shema. Say that with me, Shema. And Shema means hear or listen. And it's a prayer that said, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, listen, Israel, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is the prayer of prayers. 
In, in fact, it's so important that these words were commended uh, for people to keep them on their heart. That's the second thing there. And to talk about them as you come and go with your children, as you're, as you're going down the street, as you're getting ready for bed, talk to your children about that truth. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love him with all your heart, all your mind, soul, and strength. If you do that, everything else is going to pretty much work out. In fact, it's so important, I, I want you to put it on your doorposts, a little thing called a mezuzah, and touch it as you come into the house. And it's so important that when you pray, I want you to wrap it onto your arm and strap it onto the front of your head between your eyes. And they took that literally. To this day, you'll see that Orthodox Jews will put a phylactery on the front of their head and wrap around their arm this verse, and they will pray, saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. These are really powerful words. And then out through that lens, Judaism interprets the commandments of the law, the Ten Commandments and the Torah. There are 613 commands that are in the first five books of the Bible. And then the prophets and the writings. And then the Talmud and the Mishnah. Those are the commentaries on uh, the Hebrew Testament of the Bible. And then other rabbinical opinions, because they had these rabbinical opinions. Well, Rabbi, uh, so-and-so said this, and, and so, uh, well, they would look at it through this hierarchy. Christ followers have a different hierarchy. Our authority, of course, is the Bible. But where do we start in the Bible? Jesus was asked one day, he said, which is the greatest command? And he was very much Jewish. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. He said, all of the law and the prophets hang. I, whenever I hear that, it's, it sounds like a, a, a mobile up in a, a room, over a child's room with things hanging from it. Everything else hangs from this statement that God is one and that we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbor. The Sermon on the Mount, then I, I think would in, in my heart be next. Jesus said this in Matthew 22, that the Sermon on the Mount shows us the kingdom as it's manifesting those commands. So we get a picture of uh, in teaching of what that looks like. Then I would say the actions of Jesus in the Gospels. You know, sometimes we say WWJD, what would Jesus do? And I would say it differently. I would say, what did Jesus do? Because sometimes I, I, I've seen people, they say, well, what would Jesus do? Well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. Well, he, he did. <laughs> or, or my Jesus would do this. Jesus never did anything like that. So what did Jesus do? The reports of the Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles and then the letters of the New Testament, Paul, John, Peter, James, Jude, Hebrews. And then the law of Moses. To me, the new covenant stands over and above, of course, the Hebrew, the old covenant. The law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And Jesus interprets those within this sermon. And the two great commands. And other Hebrew Testament writings that we find in the Bible. So our Bible... Is, and we don't, we don't really look to the opinions of others. Now, we read commentaries and things, but they don't stand with the authority of Scripture. So we come to this point uh, in, in our Bible where it says, Jesus sat down. And I love this. Um, this image here is as near as we can tell where it happened. 
If you ever go to Israel, you prayerfully will go to this place. It's called the Mount of Beatitudes. It's on the north side of the Sea of Galilee near Capernaum. And it's a beautiful place and it's an amazing place because it's shaped in such a way that many people could hear uh, and listen and gather around. But he sat down and it's kind of interesting that it says that. But everybody knew that that's what rabbis did. The rabbi's getting ready to preach. Now, it's the opposite here. You know I'm getting ready to talk because I stand up. <laughs> you know, and maybe next week I'll sit down and try to be more like Jesus. But uh, he, he sat down and everyone knew, oh, now, now it's time. It's time. The rabbi is going to speak and he's going to teach. Uh, and the, it says the disciples gathered in closely, but the crowds were listening in. And uh, we don't know exactly how many. We know some, you know, when he fed 5,000, it was probably about 12,000 because it was 5,000 men. But we don't know how many were here. We know there were uh, multitudes. There were many, many people that were gathered at this point. And rabbinical teaching usually uh, grew out of questions that were asked or situations. They would say, Rabbi... Uh, in this situation where someone was married and this happened or when a neighbor's ox gored uh, my bull or something like that, th- they would ask these questions and then the rabbis would answer and so it was question and answer. It was a little bit like arguing case law uh, as they taught. Um, but the rabbis would use a hierarchy of authority and they would quote, they would say, well, as uh, rabbi so-and-so uh, said in, in this type of case, That's what they would do as rabbi, and they would go back and forth. Well, yes, but rabbi, and they would quote the famous rabbis, Gamaliel and the different ones. The teaching of Jesus was very, very different, and you can hear that. No questions were asked. There's no questions that are asked in the whole time. Jesus (coughs) is asked a lot of questions along the way, but no questions are asked. No case law is cited. No references are made to famous rabbis. And that was really, really different. So he was speaking uh, in a way that astonished the people. And that's the huge thing that we hear. When he finished, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Uh, and as, as he was finishing up, and that word is a very powerful word. And in Greek, it is the word ekpleso. Say that with me, ekpleso. It means to strike with amazement or to be flattened. So I don't know that they actually fell down, but the people were, today we'd say they were blown away. They hadn't heard anything like this, not just in their lifetimes, they hadn't heard anything like this in about 460 years. Last time someone spoke with this kind of directness was, in, was last week in Malachi. You remember that we had so many statements, so many statements that were God-speaking God Almighty says. And so he's speaking in a prophetic kind of way. Um, He was teaching as one who had authority and not as their scribes, referring to different authorities. And nobody had heard anything like that. Jesus was his own authority. And that's the huge thing that we don't want to miss in this section of Scripture. Well, in, in any passage that relates to him. There are a few places that speak so clearly from the heart of God. And there are a few places that speak so profoundly about the kingdom of God. Um, I promise you that we'll work really hard on it, but we will not exhaust the depths 
of chapters 5, 6, and 7. We just can't do it. But what we're going to do is explore a picture of his reign in our lives. Um, And it's not going to talk so much about the power to get us there. That's actually in other parts of the Bible. You hear about that more from the teachings of the Apostle Paul. But we're going to dig into what was so astonishing. We're going to dig deep. Are you ready to do that? I pray so. That's, that's the goal. There's some problems in interpretation that I just want to lift out and lift up. Uh, traditionally, liberal mainline uh, tradition has reduced all of Christianity to the Sermon on the Mount. It sort of said, well, that's, all you, that's all you need, that's all you got. Is all you have to do is live the Sermon on the Mount, which, oh, by the way, the problem with that is it's impossible. It's impossible. We're going to discover that along the way. Just live the sermon, and that's all you need, but you can't do that. There's another problem, and that problem is that the core of the Christian gospel is not in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you're going to want me to explain that, I I know. Uh, if we if we turn the sermon into another version of the law uh, as a way to be saved, it doesn't tell us how to be saved. It just doesn't. It's not in there. And if we turn the sermon into another version of the law, we're going to miss the grace of the gospel. And we're going to struggle a little bit with this because of the law and what he says about the law. If we treat it as an unattainable standard, we're going to miss the guidance. If we just say, well, it's not attainable, so I'm going to put it off to the side. I'm not going to worry about it. We're going to miss the guidance that, God, that Jesus has for us. So we don't want to miss that. So what is the gospel? Now, the Bible says that Jesus began to preach the gospel of the kingdom, which means the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. But when we talk about the gospel in the New Testament... We find it in 1 Corinthians 15, and it's so, so look, clear here. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. This is the gospel of Christian faith. This is it. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the gospel. That's it. None of that has happened yet, so that's really why it's not in the sermon. It hasn't happened yet. But we get salvation from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. No other place. And we cannot ignore it. We dare not ignore that. Now, once we're saved, and that's what um, Jesus was talking about in John 3. Uh, Unless you're born again, you won't know what the kingdom of God is like. Once we're saved, we get kingdom culture. And we get it from the Sermon on the Mount. And earth begins to look more like heaven. That's that's in there. That's a prayer. Uh, uh, We pray that Things on earth might be more like in heaven. And we will get to that. It's it's in uh, 610. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why Why don't we say that aloud together? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'm excited about digging in on this. Uh, 
I was excited this past year uh, to watch the new series called The Chosen. And uh, in The Chosen, uh, let me just talk a little bit about it. I know that some are skeptical and some are even critical. And if you know me, you know that I'm skeptical and maybe a little bit critical, okay? Uh, But the show has really, really grown on me. There are many, many things I really like about it. Um, And I've come to the conclusion that anything that gets me to think, reflect, meditate, or focus on the Word of God is good. And there are lots and lots of books and commentaries. This is sort of a visual commentary. And again and again, uh, the makers will tell you, this is not scripture. This is not scripture. This is not scripture. So if you're going to watch The Chosen, you need to watch it with a Bible in hand and then um, let those inform each other. (laughs) But The Chosen uh, is not a replacement for the Word of God or, or really a study of the Word of God. Uh, but it builds a backstory, a theatrical backstory, uh, and probable interactions that are really studied out. I'm amazed because I've studied a lot and I learn things all the time by watching The Chosen. And it, it looks at interactions and issues and conflicts and reactions and responses. And because of that, I enjoy it a lot. It just brings things to life. But boy, I have some moments where I go, what? <laughs> And one of them was at the end of season two, leading up to the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, during this whole episode, episode eight of season two, Jesus is writing his sermon. And I never thought of that. (laughs) I write sermons. Why would Jesus be? Okay, all right, I'm okay with that. We know he was human and he was divine. So, okay, I'm I'm cool with him. Not that he needs my permission. Okay. (laughs) But he's writing a sermon, and Matthew is taking it down. Okay, all right, I'm okay with that. There's other parts of the Bible that are like that. Um, and Jesus is reviewing his sermon with Matthew. He's, he's bouncing ideas off of Matthew. Now, preachers do this all the time. We have preachers in the congregation. I'll say, what do you think about this? I'm thinking about this or this idea. And we bounce it around. Sometimes preachers, I have preacher friends in the community. We meet together and we'll bounce around some ideas. Okay, so I understand that. It's a very human kind of portrayal. But, uh, but I, was, I was kind of taken aback by it. Okay, I'm listening. I'm watching. I'm trying to hear uh, what is going on in this situation. And, um, and he's writing things down. And... The comment is made that he's just wanting to get it right. Okay, I, all right, I'll get to that in a little bit. But, and uh, I tend to think that the word made flesh who spoke worlds into existence always gets everything right. That's just how I think of it. I don't think of him as a fellow preacher working on his sermon on a Saturday night, you know, or a Friday night. I just don't think of him that way. We do know he was fully human. So he may have bounced ideas around, but it would have been, in my mind, for a different reason, uh, probably to help Matthew along the way. But it builds an interesting conversation um, along the way. Jesus asks Matthew in this, in this episode, he says, which sections you know, that we have, how many do we have? And he says, which, which sections stand out to you the most? And Matthew says, oh, the one, uh, don't be anxious about your life. And that very much relates to who he is, if you watch it. And Jesus says, well, which concern you? And Matthew says, well, when I compare, when I count up, because he's a counting guy, 
when I count up the good news and the bad, there's not very much good news. And he says many of the, uh, of the announcements are ominous. And then Jesus makes a statement. Now, it's, I'm going to put this up here, but you need to know this is not in the Bible. But he says, it is a manifesto. I'm not here to be sentimental and soothing. I am here to start a revolution, a radical shift. Now, it's a powerful statement, but it's an interpretive statement. It's a commentary. Jesus never said that. But it's a a powerful statement about what the sermon is about and what's going on here. And so uh, together they begin to try to figure out what's the best opening line to use, which is just amazing to me. And, uh, and he uh, talks about, you know, it needs to be inviting. And, and Jesus says, these things will make sense to some, but not to others. I like that. I don't want to be, I don't want passive followers. I want those who are truly committed, who will peer deeply into it, looking for the truth. That's what we're doing. Jesus never said that. He said it in the portrayal. But it's a powerful thought. Meanwhile, Mary and the others are creating notices uh, to invite people to the sermon. They're doing a PR campaign. Your pastor scratches, really scratches his head with this one. Somehow, I don't think Jesus, he actually already had a PR campaign. Let me read it to you. His fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them, and great crowds followed him. That that was his PR campaign. I understand trying to kind of humanize it. The disciples are kind of wondering where Jesus is as he spends this time with Matthew, uh, trying to work on the sermon, and the the question uh, is, is answered, well, he's just wanting to get it right. And then there's a response, can he get anything wrong? And that's really powerful because it really speaks of who we know Jesus to be. He finally arrives at the opening for the sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he he explains, of course, Jesus didn't say this. Um, He explains that it's a map of directions to find me. And I think that's very powerful in there. It's not, the, it's not the way of salvation, but it is the map of directions to find me, to find Jesus. And so the people begin to gather all kinds of people, and, uh, and Jesus is going over his sermon. I just, this is hard for me to imagine, but it's okay. And the women try to dress him uh, so he'll look nice and try to figure out what color he should wear. And I love this because he says, I can't tell you how little I care about how I look. So there's some truths, there's just some powerful things that come out. And then finally, he's told it is time. And a makeshift stage has been set up with a backdrop and a curtain. This really took me back. Um, And he enters through a curtain. And in the new season, we'll see what happens next. I hope he sits down. (laughs) Because the scripture does say that. But we'll see what happens next. I raise all this because... When we have scripture that's so familiar, it is extremely helpful to open it. You know, we've written musicals up here that we've performed that brought scripture to life and and engaged in dialogue that is not specifically in the Bible. But it helps us 
to get a hold of the truth of the gospel and it helps the gospel to get a hold of us. That is what I hope we will be doing in the weeks that are ahead. So I want us to just stop because we're at this beginning place and pray. And so will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that you will take us to this amazing place. That we won't just skirt by it, run past it, slip, slip by it. But that you will speak to us here in this place as we seek you in the weeks that are ahead. Open our hearts to the kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we want to close our service a little bit different um, this weekend. Uh, I am so very aware, so very aware of the many, many needs that are in our families, in our extended families, in our places of work. Uh, There's been so much loss. Um, You know, I mean, I know four people that died in the last week, week and a half. And so... And so there's grief, there's hurt, there are people who are fighting for their lives right now, and you know some of those people, I'm sure. And so we wanted uh, tonight to have a a time of prayer for healing. And we're going to close, uh, I have a prayer for healing, it's in your bulletin, and we have this prayer that I want us to say aloud. And then we want to invite you just quietly to remain, and Mike's going to play, and uh, we have a couple of teams that will be here. If you have a need... For healing, it may be a need for healing in the area of a loss or someone that you are want to stand in the stead for them who is very, very sick. If there's a, a fractured relationship that needs to be healed, uh, to just come and uh, one of these teams will just pray with you. We're not going to do a lot of laying on of hands and close things, but we would love to pray for you and pray with you. So let me ask you to stand and let's pray this prayer for healing together. Just if you would join me. Dear God, I pray for healing for all those who are affected by illness in their bodies or minds. Only you can move in a mighty way to do the impossible for them. I pray that all negative outcomes be resolved by your healing hands. Bless and cover each and every person and bring whole healing to their bodies from the top of their head to the soles of their feet. In your name I pray, amen. As we close our service today, we are having prayer in each of our services for the specific needs of people in their families and uh, in their homes. There is a great deal of need these days for healing and for strength, for comfort for those who are grieving. And we want to connect with you uh, who are watching my live stream and just ask you to pray and uh, for us to join with you. Whatever your need might be, uh, I know that the Lord wants to hear. So will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are more ready to hear our prayers than we are to pray. Sometimes we feel insurmountable issues and obstacles, and yet you are very aware of the way to move those aside and to move us ahead. God, we pray today that you would touch the lives of our families and our congregation, 
Lord, that you would touch us with your healing grace, your healing mercy in the name of Jesus. We pray that you would uh, rid us of this plague and pandemic that has been upon us for so long. Lord, that you would help us to regain strength and recover uh, for those who have been afflicted. God, we pray for those who have had losses and just pray for your comfort and your strength to be with them and to surround them. God, by your Holy Spirit, bring your comfort and healing. Lord, we thank you that you are there and ever ready to help. And for those who have needs in their lives for finances, for job breakthroughs, God, we pray that you would touch those situations. Lord, we appeal to you and we come to you in the name of Jesus that you would strengthen us and help us in these times. In Jesus' name. Amen.